Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism. And now your host, Patrick Donahoe. My guest today is Ryan Moran. You like to go by your middle name too, dude, right? Ryan Daniel Moran? There's lots of Ryan Morans out there. That's right. Ryan Daniel Moran. But there's only one that owns capitalism.com. But uh, Ryan is uh, the founder of Capitalism.com and a host of the 1% podcast. He's a, a father, a Browns fan, and a future owner of the Cleveland Indians, which makes me assume that you're from Ohio. Well, I mean, I think the Browns fan is kind of a dead giveaway. It's the only oh, reason totally. to, I don't you know, know the only reason to suffer in 20 years of losing seasons is if, if you've got some sort of boyhood loyalty to them. So. But I'm sure there's a story behind, like, why not the Bengals instead of the Browns, especially if you're a, a Cleveland fan, right? Grew up in Cleveland, so that should okay. do it. Cool. All right. So, Ryan, this is going to be an awesome podcast. I'm stoked because you're the owner of Capitalism.com. I'm sure there's a, a really cool story to that in addition to actually having that site. I mean, there's kind of a big responsibility, I would assume, right? If you have that domain and you're branding that domain and you know how you've come to understand capitalism. So I'd like to start there if that's cool. So let's start with how you are defining capitalism right now in the present moment. Yeah, I think my favorite definition of the word capitalism is from Hayek, where he says that it's a increasing system of strangers serving one another. <sighs> it's, it's the system through which we are incentivized to serve one another. I had an economics professor in college. His name was Dr. Ivan Pongrasik, and he had escaped Soviet Russia escaped because he was almost caught smuggling Elvis records and Fender guitars across the borders. And they made it punishable by death if he did that. And he said, so you know what I did? I raised the price. Um, and he used to talk about capitalism was just the system through which we practiced freedom. And in order for us to get ahead, we have to serve one another. It's where we are incentivized to do so. And so I think that's also why we see such a pushback on the left today against capitalism is because we've forgotten that it's simply the way that we exercise freedom. And when we go in and try to fix freedom or force freedom or try to allocate freedom to be more, quote, responsible, we distort it. And we all agree that personal freedom and freedom is a high aim. And when we can put capitalism as just the protector of freedom, the system through which we have freedom, I think that's a universal principle that no one can disagree with. So, and how you, what you were just saying, it, it seems like everyone would agree with you on this notion of freedom. But so, why don't they? Why is there such a disdain for capitalism? Because of short term desires. Hmm. If your reference point is 10 years ago, then you are naturally going to look ahead only for the next few years. But if your reference point is 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, a thousand years, well, the path forward is really obvious. It's kind of like trading stocks versus being an investor. It's kind of like flipping houses versus being an income investor. It's kind of like trying to make money on the internet versus building an internet business. Mm -hmm. Capitalism is the same. If a 20 year old is looking at the state of the world compared to when he or she was eight, there's not a very good reference point for how the world acts. So all that person is going to see is problems. They're going to see who doesn't have health care. 
They have no reference point for who had health care 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. They're going to look at the way that they think the world should be through the lens of problems rather than looking at the trend of the world over the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. If you have never traveled, if you haven't lived a few decades, if you haven't studied history, of course you would have a short-term view of the world in which you only saw problems. So our job is to paint a different picture and to be relentless defenders of that freedom so that the loud voices don't get a foothold in what we know the world needs to do. So what would your, if you, you know, were in a, a debate contest and you stood on the other side, like how would you defend that we're not, uh, you know, 1750, Ryan, we don't trade wine and bread and potatoes, right? We're in a civilized, you know, modern society where, you know, healthcare should be a a right. Like, how do you take that stance and defend it up against capitalism? The way that we defend that stance is by coming back to the fundamental agreement that we want the same things. I have a very high percentage of liberals converted because (laughs) most of them have the perspective that a conservative or a libertarian just doesn't want poor people to have health care. So we have to dispel that myth. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just have to say, look, I have the same goal as you of ensuring that the least of those around us have access to quality, affordable health care. I have the exact same goal. Let me tell you why my plan, if you will, is a better way to get that mm-hmm. than somebody else. I heard Naval Ravikant talk about universal basic income recently. He was talking with Scott Adams. And Scott Adams asked him what he thought of universal basic income. And Naval said, oh, we're going to have it. It's just going to come from the private sector. Hmm. We're going to have phones be so cheap that Google will just give them out so that you use their apps and their platform. Hmm. But you'll basically have a universal standard of living. We don't need it to come from the government. And that type of an argument is how I persuade the other side to come to our side of the argument. You Mm -hmm. say, we're after the same goal. Your way of getting there is to trust Trump and all of his friends to come up with a plan. How confident are you in that happening? My plan is this. And I have a very high percentage rate of getting people to convert after that. Well, it's, you know, I'm going to go back to your side. You know, it's one of those, like, Challenges will always occur, but there's always people looking to solve challenges. It's kind of like an instinct in us, right? We see challenge, but we look for opportunities. You know, I I always look at the Jungle Book, right? Where, you know, Mowgli is this character that's different from the rest of the forest because they're there to survive. And he has this like instinct to come up with solutions for this and solutions for that. And it's like, that's human nature. And even though we have challenges, when you do create that environment of freedom, People are able to exercise and are able to try things and try this and try that. And ultimately, you know, there's solutions that create the betterment of everyone. At the same time, right, it's one of those, there's a little time involved there. Whereas writing a check to somebody is the easiest thing to do. And typically people want that, like you said, short-term solution. And that's where they tend to go and to gripe about. So our brains are wired to produce happiness as a byproduct to increases of survival chances. So happiness is actually kind of an illusion. Happiness is chemicals that fire when our brains think we have a higher chance of surviving. And the only way that we do that 
is by solving problems. Love that. Solve the threats that we have to our own survival. Love that. So we literally unlock happiness by solving problems. So biologically, we are wired to solve problems. Unfortunately, we tend to fire short-term versus long-term if we're in a threat situation. And most people today have the perception of threat even though our livelihoods and our survival is as good as it has ever been. Yeah, I mean, there, Ray Dalio, I heard him speak a couple months ago, and you know, he was talking about this whole idea of universal basic income and the threat of artificial intelligence and you know, all these people are going to be displaced by jobs. But there's so many solutions that the government can come up with, right? But it's one of those, like there's something about humans where there has to be a fulfillment side of their life, right? And if there's not, then life becomes the opposite of what you were saying. It's unhappy. When you're not able to solve those problems, it robs people right, of the opportunity to find that fulfillment or find that happiness. I'm really disappointed in Ray Dalio. He has some interesting stances on it. I think most those of us who identify as capitalists or libertarians should be disappointed in Ray Dalio. I don't know where his tune changed of seeing the pie that he created and started to feel guilty about it. But his entire thesis lately on the speaking tour that he's been going on is that we need a better way to allocate pieces of the pie. And what Dalio mistakes and seems to overlook is that there is no pie. There is no limited amount of value. He should know he created a big one. Mm-hmm. He helped a lot of people along the way. Well, he so, aggregated a lot of capital. I don't know if, you know, capitalism. Yeah, that's actually, that's a good distinction. That's a good distinction. He, I guess, based on his background, when he's raising capital from a lot of places, maybe he would have more of a, there's a fixed amount versus it being a a creation. It's a great distinction, Patrick. But overall, as a community, I think we should be very disappointed in the message that he's starting to spread. Well, let's get into a few of the things. I'm going to really kind of dive into your story around capitalism.com, because as I mentioned, it's one of those things you buy it and you can monetize it. At the same time, if you share a, or if you have a philosophy around what it means and what you want the world to understand what it means, that's a, a big responsibility. So let's get into that. What's the story behind your intrigue and interest in the idea of capitalism? Or maybe your parents were these staunch, like libertarian, F.A. Hayek followers, and you went to Mises University when you were little. And maybe it <laughs> was like that. Or maybe, you know, that. I love your story. Yeah, so I'll try and do it in uh, 30 to 45 seconds. I went to college to be a pastor. Mm. And I, spoiler alert, did not go that route. I had an economics professor who basically gave a talk that changed my life where he was talking about how the greatest way that we can find God's will or find our greatest purpose or find our maximum dollar amount, however you divide that up, like our highest calling is by using the marketplace. And seeing price as an indication of where there was need, of where there was a value, where there was opportunities to create something, that completely changed my brain and, and altered the course of my life and my career. Now, add that in with some doubts that I had about my faith. You know, it was a, a perfect time for me to make a switch. And so I ended up going to school and studying economics while building my first business, while the 2008 crash and the election were all going on at the same time. Hmm. And so those are my formative years and the opportunity to acquire the name that represented all of my biggest interests was presented to me and it was to acquire capitalism.com. And since then, 
we've been building out events and a platform for entrepreneurs because I believe ultimately we only change minds and we change direction by changing individuals. I don't think that debate on a grand scale is how we ultimately change people's mind. I think we lead by example. And so at Capitals.com, we help entrepreneurs build businesses and invest the profits. And I'm playing the long game because the more millionaires you create, the more kids you have with those financially educated individuals as parents. And I think that's ultimately how we change perspectives. Okay, so let's talk applied capitalism. So teaching businesses, right? There are a lot of ways to uh, approach this, but business has changed significantly, right? Over the last decade, right? As far as how capital is raised. In some cases, profitability doesn't even matter to raise capital, just an idea matters. But how are you applying what you've learned about capitalism and that philosophy to what you teach others about businesses and maybe how you treat your own businesses? Your basic capitalist theory, things get easier over time. Resources get freed up. Mm -hmm. You have more access to opportunity. And that is your point about things changing so much in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Capital is abundant. The opportunities for advertising are cheaper than ever, at higher scale than ever. Any message can go viral at any time. So things continue to get easier. I don't buy into this narrative that it's somehow getting harder. It's getting easier and there are more and more opportunities. However, it's changing faster and faster. So you have more creative destruction than ever before, which, I mean, we all love it until it happens to us, right? Okay. Yeah, but if we're going to be consistent with our argument, then we have to just either adapt or go find a new business. So to me, we're just seeing capitalism in action. We're seeing lots of new opportunities be liberated. We're seeing a lot of uh, new resources become available. And these are things that didn't exist for us as a society as recently as 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, Joseph Schumpeter, that whole creative destruction principle is powerful. But again, it goes to more of the long game than the short game, right? Where a lot of the lessons are learned, you know, after a lot of the chaos ensues, you know, hence 2008, 2009, where, you know, there's some incredible lessons learned by people. And I think we've become stronger because of that, not weaker. All right. So let's back up just two steps then. So looking at, you know, what you discovered as more of a philosophical approach to capitalism based on the economics people of the past, which are not all obviously pro-capitalism, but you then started to apply that to business. But it sounds like you experienced some of that uh, creative destruction. What do you mean experience that creative destruction? It sounds like you may have experienced business going under or maybe a business oh, well. obsolete or maybe you hired the wrong team or like, did you go through oh, some I mean, haven't we all learn that? I mean, haven't we all? I mean, yeah. if, if okay. you're not failing more often than you are succeeding, you probably aren't a real entrepreneur. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, I was just journaling about this last night about the fact that it really only takes one big breakthrough in order to pay for all of your failures. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, we live in this world in which basically all of our needs are met for almost no money. I mean, we're really close to having a universal basic living standard at this point. Yep. Unfortunately, we're all comparing ourselves in terms of status, which is why there's this myth of wealth inequality, which of course we all know is a myth. Mm -hmm. we, since we have our basic needs met, you can pretty much fail at scale <laughs> until you win. So again, we all love it until it happens to us. But if you can develop that muscle of being comfortable swinging and missing, then you know one at bat is all it's going to take in order for you to have the impact that you want to have. 
I have stopped measuring progress in dollars because dollars are a commodity at this point. You know, what wealth is just a way to make things happen faster. I think the more dialed in you are to the type of life that you want and the things that you want to do, money becomes a byproduct of doing that really well. And it becomes gasoline for you to make it happen faster. So I have changed my tune a little bit where I became an entrepreneur because I wanted money. And then you realize that all money is, is a tool to make change happen. So if you identify the change that you want to have, then you can swing and miss all you want. Eventually pay dirt happens and that both justifies your failures and allows your successes to happen that much faster, which by the way, is the purpose of money and capital in the first place to fuel the distribution of goods and services, to fuel the distribution of good work. So what do you use as your primary measurements of whether or not your business is uh, successful? Yeah, part of it is, am I happy? I mean, part of it is, do I like doing what I'm doing? Another is client happiness and scale, meaning are people voluntarily sharing what it is that we're doing? I had a professor in college who was supposedly like an expert in this idea of the diffusion curve of distribution. If you get those loud early adopters, they bring them to the rest of the world. If you have a core group of rating fans, they bring your message, your market, they bring your product and service to the rest of the world. So part of how I'm evaluating on it is, are people talking about it? Are, are people diffusing it for me? And if that's the case, then I know I've done something well in the world. So let me kind of break into that a little bit. There was a company recently called the restaurant chain called Even Stevens. Do you know, have you ever heard of them before? I've heard of them. I've, I've yeah. Never so chapter 11 bankruptcy right now, but they had this, you know, this culture of doing good and impacting people. Their business model was set up where someone bought a sandwich, one sandwich was donated to you know, the poor, but they're in bankruptcy right now. So how do you kind of reconcile, you know, from a profitability standpoint, right? How do you reconcile that? I mean, wanting to do good, wanting to impact people, but yet at the same time, bringing in more than this is going out. I used to work at Dunkin' Donuts when Ooh, I was in uh, high school. Loved Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. When I was in high school, my first real job, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> I worked at Dunkin' Donuts. And at the end of the night, we had hundreds and hundreds of extra donuts. We had a lot of them. And a lot of them went to waste, threw them away. And a lot of them we donated to food shelters. There was so much waste, we could give some to shelters. I could take some to school the next day, and I did. We could throw away a bunch. I mean, there were a lot of wasted donuts. The only way that you can have that type of good waste, if you will, is if you're running a profitable enterprise. So the people who talk about, you know, the Tom Shoes model, and they have their own financial problems with the idea of we're going to give first. It's a great idea, but you can give a lot more when you're running a profitable enterprise. Profit is excess. Profit is extra, and it is a reflection of a gap in the marketplace. That's a really good thing. You are doing good by making profit. Profit is a reflection of doing good. It's not the like bad thing you get. I mean, profit is the reflection of you doing good. And with that, you can do whatever you want. You already paid your debt to society by doing the good thing in the first place. And you have profit as a byproduct. 
So if you want to take that and now have more additional impact, mazel tov, go for it. You're under no requirement to do so, but you will do more good putting all of those sandwich profits into more sandwiches, and you'll probably have excess that you can then sustainably give away. So I think that the idea of doing something that matters and getting paid for it is self-perpetuating and self-rewarding on its own, and then you can do what you'd like with the profits. So the reconciliation then is what I'm assuming is, you know, obviously you want to be benefiting customers. You want to have a good time and be happy and feel fulfilled in what you're doing. But at the same time, you know, dollars are important, right? From a measurement standpoint to ensure that there's more coming in than going out. Yeah. I mean, the reconciliation is even Stevens would have done a lot more good in the world if they were running a profitable enterprise. Totally. Because they are not doing any good now. Yeah, exactly. They can't do anything now. All right, dude. So let's get into the hot buttons because this is a good transition because, you know, as much as we would think that there are more supporters of free markets and laissez-faire capitalism and allow people in the markets to solve problems, you know, there is a growing philosophy, right, that has existed for a while using the narrative of uh, social good and that, you know, the capitalists and money hoarders are these fat guys that live in big mansions, right? So let's talk about first Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I think is a really interesting political phenomenon in the last couple of years. And then Andrew Yang, maybe we'll start with AOC. So what's your pulse on her? Like, what, How do you view the attraction to what she is saying and why she's gained so much ground from just building a big audience in the inner circles of you know, the Democratic Party, but also just you know, in society as well? My pulse on her is that she is extremely smart. She's very smart. I think she is one of the smartest politicians ever. I think the idea that she is a stupid 29-year-old millennial is a false narrative. And if you think that, you've played right into her hand. I mean, if she was not 29 years old, she would be the Democratic frontrunner for president. That You know, a waitress turned social media celebrity is already leading the direction of the Democratic Party. I mean, you do not do that being an idiot. You just don't. The only person in politics smarter than AOC is Donald J. Trump. Yeah, I was just going to say, how do you see the parallel between her and Donald Trump? Because it was the same way with him. It still is. They're the two smartest people in Washington, D.C. So do you think she got to that point like overnight? Because she just came onto the scenes in a really short period of time. Is that a natural ability to be that persuasive? Like, where is it's coming from? Obviously, she was a waitress at just an incredible restaurant in New York City, but like, where did it come from? I think it came from a combination of talent. She's incredibly intuitive in terms of what she needs to say in order to get attention. It's talent with what she looks like, because if she was a white, ugly dude, she wouldn't have the following that she did. We have to be real about Like, we can't ignore that. Come on. We all have natural privileges, and Mm -hmm. what she looks like is one Mm -hmm. of hers. Mm -hmm. And the other was timing. She's perfectly well-timed. Her message for her talent stack in the state that the Democratic Party is in, where it's essentially a leaderless party, she walks in and is the benefit of applying that talent stack to this timing. So I think it's been a combination of all of those things, just like Donald Trump was a combination of all those things, although he had a, a much longer game 
than she did. She's the benefit of social media and she's got a good social media strategy. And she entered into the conversation when it needed a polarizing figure to counter the current president. You're taking the stance that this is a, a pretty deep stake in the ground, not a flash in the pan. I am curious to see what she does over the next few years. We'll see. But if you look at her overall strategy, she's already being effective in the way that she wants to be effective. The Green New Deal is her wall. So I know there are people who disagree with me, but I'm very confident the wall is not a real thing. The wall was never a real thing. The wall was a marketing tool. Donald Trump knew there was never going to be a wall across the border. He knew this. And because he knew this, he knew he would always have a rallying cry to point at the enemy. If his supporters didn't get their wall, they could always say, well, it's going to happen. The Democrats are standing in the way. There's never going to be a wall. It's a marketing ploy. It's the same thing with the Green New Deal. AOC comes out with this ridiculous plan that we're all talking about. And she's now changed the narrative to be about which pieces of the Green New Deal are feasible and which ones aren't. And based on that, we're going to calculate it and discuss it and argue about it. And that's exactly what she wanted. Exactly. That's exactly what she wants. And she'll get pieces of it over time. And she'll always be able to look across the aisle and say, see, they said no. They said no, which was why it was a brilliant move to make the Democrats vote on it. That was painting them to a corner. It was actually very smart of the Republicans to do. Well, I would say that whole Mike Lee, you know, Velociraptor crap, like totally played into her hands. I thought that was one of the, I understood where he was coming from, but I'm like, dude, really? Like, how do you think that's going to make you look any better? (laughs) Well, I do think that she is here at least for the next few election cycles. I'm curious to see how her message changes. I'm curious to see over once Donald Trump is reelected and then (laughs) go by, you will basically have two leaderless parties because Mike Pence isn't the incumbent. He he will never be president. The Democrats will have no leader at that point. And I think uh, Pete Buttigieg could have been that, but I think he blew his shot. And as a result, I'm curious to see where AOC is in six years. I think she'll just miss the cutoff to run again. So uh, she could play kingmaker at that point. And if that's the case, then she's around to stay. So going to her facade, which I agree, I mean, some of the stuff that she says, is just like, nobody says that, like, there's an agenda behind it. So what does your crystal ball say her agenda is? Like, what is she trying to accomplish, political career? Or do you think that there's something more nefarious behind the scenes, like socialism and communism? You know, I think back to the Occupy Wall Street movement. And I think, I don't know if you ever visited any of the Occupy. I was one right next to my office. Okay, well. I had so much fun going and debating those. Um, And eventually what happened? The movement kind of died and went away and then became Bernie Sanders supporters. They gave way to another failed movement. And I kind of think socialism is such a tired idea. I don't fear the noise that it has in the world right now because no one actually wants it. So I think the the movement of capitalism, the movement of freedom is too powerful at this point. And that will prevent a socialist uprising from taking hold. So my crystal ball says that AOC will continue to point her finger at enemies. She'll continue to have a wave of followers. And I think she'll continue to be impactful on the left, but her message will change. 
unless of course we have another economic meltdown and then all bets are off. And then at that point, I have no opinion. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> Let's go to the next hot button, which is Andrew Yang, which I would oh, take, I would say is a throw up. Jeez, <laughs> oh, he's been on your show, That's right? I should have boycotted this. I know. It's one well, of those was, before he was president. He was on your show. So. Yeah, before he was president. Before he was running for president. Yeah. Uh, no, he was actually oh, officially running right. for president when he was on, but it was like recently okay. after his, uh, his book came out. It's interesting to see what he's done. I think he also is maybe not taking as you know abrasive of a stance as AOC, but still with doing the whole hologram. You know, he's going to show up to debates in a hologram or whatever. I mean, he's doing a pretty good job marketing it. Like, how do you look at Andrew Yang's philosophy, which I would say is definitely part socialism, part progressive, you know, part just accommodating the rising, you know, Y generation. Yeah. So first of all, Andrew Yang says that a universal basic income is capitalism starting from not zero. And I say, no, universal basic income is socialism with lipstick. It is not an enhanced form of capitalism. It's just a different way to redistribute from the government. So I, I don't care for Andrew's policies, well, one bit, but he's running a flawless campaign. I have to give him credit for doing an amazing job at running for president, but I don't care for him one bit. Most of it, I think he knows he's misleading people. I think he knows that he's making up problems that don't exist. Hmm. I mean, if you watched his Joe Rogan interview, he just sat there and talked about problems that are not real, like truckers being replaced. Truckers are actually, their wages are going up. There's a shortage of truckers because there are so many other unskilled opportunities. There are so many low-skilled jobs and so many opportunities for low-skilled people that there's a shortage in truck drivers because nobody wants to work that those long hours driving a truck. And so what has happened? Truck driver salaries have gone up. There's recruiting happening to get people to become truck drivers. So no, we don't have a problem in all the truck drivers going away. We have an increased demand, prices going up. And so I think he makes up problems where there are not problems to address, but he's getting a lot of attention for it. So, and he's not the only one that's on that bandwagon. Like there's a lot of the, you know, Silicon Valley elites that tend to, to feel the same way. So with, when you do have that insight into technology and the speed at which things are becoming automated, I mean, the, the argument, I would say, has some merit to it, wouldn't you think, as far as you know, the automation of certain unskilled things? But you're just saying that the transition to that is going to take longer than people think? Like, where are you coming yeah. up with just, yeah. No, I think a universal basic income, if it replaced all other government programs, would be a step in the right direction. But that's not what Yang argues for. Yang is arguing for just doling out checks to everyone. And not only is it not appropriate, it's not needed. Again, we've talked about how the standard of living is mm -hmm. continues to rise and real prices continue to decline. Mm -hmm. That trend is going to only continue. Just like we talked about in the example of Google giving out free phones, mm -hmm. that is going to continue to happen and it's happening in a faster and faster rate. I mean, look how new the idea of a grocery store is in our society. We take it for granted, but a grocery store has only existed for this much of our history. And we talk about food prices. Food prices are at an all-time low. I can go to the grocery store and get goji berries from China 
for eight bucks. Are you kidding me? It's the whole idea of eye pencil, that famous piece about all Learn, the yeah. that go into the pencil, right? So no, I'm not of the opinion that a universal basic income is even necessary because we continue to have a fall in prices and an increase in standard of living. Yeah, it's one of those things where it, it's hard sometimes to distinguish, unless you're a professional marketer like yourself, to distinguish kind of what's really being said. You know, it makes total sense. I mean, from a Donald Trump standpoint, a lot of his tactics, whether it was the debate tactics or his tweets or his, you know, punchlines, the amazing nature in which he marketed himself and won. But I look at AOC and some of the same things. And I would say that, you know, you have some insight that most don't because you can read between the lines. And I can see that with Andrew Yang. I don't think he's as conspicuous. I think he is, you know, using something where there is some sort of a stronghold behind his theory because Silicon elites, they have all this concern with you know, artificial intelligence and how quickly Moore's law and how this is all happening. And, you know, it's just getting out of control. And we're going to have to provide for people's well-being, right? It's a compelling narrative, but you're basically saying that it's that. He doesn't necessarily believe in it. It's just a narrative for him to run on. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, again, how our brains are wired, we are influenced by momentum and direction more than anything else. So the projection of where things are going in the future. Now, you and I and everyone here listening knows that the trend of the world on a macro level is pretty damn impressive. The things that we're just about to invent and create are that much more impressive. So in order to get attention, Andrew has to stand there and say, look, there's this thing going on that is going to replace all of the jobs. And now he has to set the trend for how things are going. He talks about suicide rates going up. He doesn't mention that they're higher in the affluent than they are among those at the bottom. He just talks about the correlation between suicide rates and economic hardship. Economic hardship is at an all-time low. So he is just going to talk about, paint a picture of a trend that is happening because you are likely to pay attention if you fear the future, if the future is a coming trend that is dangerous. And of course, he has a terrible solution of giving out free money to people, which is why he's capturing attention. He's doing a wonderful job at it, but I think he is doing it intentionally misleading. Well, society in general has been highly influenced by you know, movies and TV and what we've been told the future is, right? So we're always looking to the future. I've just never made the connection until now that, you know, there are these short-term kind of spikes in interest and intrigue, right? On purpose to gain attention and popularity based on, you know, just how we're programmed, how we've been in a sense. Today is the first time that a message can be delivered at scale, like click of a button, So because of that, we are now incentivized to do whatever gets attention on a mass scale, especially when you're doing something like running for president. And so this is new in our evolution for that to even be possible. And so that's why I think you are so interesting, kind of a a battle with the truth and a battle with reality. Let's do this because this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you for sharing your insight. Hopefully this is valuable to the audience. Why don't you talk about maybe something that's more a little more positive, which is, you know, you obviously are getting negative feedback on just the ideas of capitalism, which is understandable. But what are you seeing as the positive things? How are you seeing people open up to the ideas of freedom and entrepreneurship and the opportunities that exist and are open to, wow, we live in such an amazing, you know, an amazing time? 
maybe talk about yeah. your pulse there and if you see that uh, growing in popularity, that perspective. Yeah, if we remove the labels, if we remove the way that we define it, freedom and capitalism is more popular than ever. I mean, look at your average college graduate who is now faced with the decision of, do I get a job or do I start my own thing? I mean, now look at young people today where the most popular desired job is to be a YouTuber. I mean, <laughs> look at some of my peers who are saying, you know what I want to do for a living is play video games on Twitch. These were absurd ideas 10 years ago. But because we have so many new opportunities, the opportunities for entrepreneurship are greater than they have ever been. And entrepreneurship requires personal responsibility. You become libertarian real quick when you're an entrepreneur because you realize you want to keep what you earn and you only get to earn what is made on your own merit. Mm -hmm. So based on that, I'm very bullish, very optimistic about the trend of young people. Yes, a loud core is following AOC and all of their peers are making a thousand dollars a month from YouTube and they don't need Andrew Yang to dole out cash to them. And so because of that, it, I mean, do any of them want to give up those opportunities? No. It's why I don't fear when Elizabeth Warren says she wants to break up Google. It's not going to happen, right? They're creating too many opportunities for people. So I'm incredibly optimistic. I see the political theater going on right now is entertaining, but not a threat at all. I think the trend of capitalism, the trend of freedom is way too strong. I think you see that trend accelerates. If we look at a macro view, if we look at 100 years ago, if we look at 50 years ago, and I think technology is only going to accelerate that because remember, only half the world has internet access. There's still an entire half of the world just coming online and having access to information, of having access to opportunities. The, the global marketplace is about to double. I mean, yeah. Well, isn't SpaceX, isn't that, you know, that's one of their big projects is the satellite internet and bringing that to Africa and India and parts, you know, where they don't yeah. have the infrastructure. Yeah. And when that happens, oh, yeah, explode. you're just going to see an, an, a boom like we have never seen before. Hmm. And that requires markets, that requires freedom, that requires capital. And so I think we are still on the up and up and that is only going to continue. And that's where the optimism part of me is really, really excited about the future, my future, my kid's future. At the same time, I look at sins of the past, or maybe not sins, but things that have happened that have put just the world in a sense in a tough spot, whether it's, you know, the unfunded obligations that we have with the amount of sure. debt that's out there with social security having major issues, pensions having major issues. Sure. You know, but I also look at, you know, these days where you have a big percentage of the NASDAQ who, you know, is on the brink of junk status, just looking at how capital is being raised to fund companies that aren't necessarily making a profit. And the only way they can meet payroll is to continue to get rounds of funding. So how do you reconcile your optimism with, you know, just some of the real things that we're facing right now? That is a fantastic question. And it's for those reasons that sometimes I do look at certain companies and go, for example, right at the time that we're recording this, Zoom went public. Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're using Zoom to record this right now. I don't know. Uh, like 70 yeah, bucks is, is like 100% more than what it was initially priced at? Yes. And like, I don't remember the valuation, but it was stupid. 
<laughs> it's an awesome technology, but still, you know, the value. but it's a stupid valuation. Yeah. Right? So, so I do think we are right right now for that to adjust. But I think we can look squarely in the face of government policy, specifically interest rates as dictated by the Federal Reserve. I know they're independent, but please, they're the fourth branch of government. Come on, let's just call it what it is. So they manipulating interest rates, I think we all kind of agree that that has been a problem. And it's the reason why we have the asset prices that we have. And so those things have to adjust. But I am bullish on the fact that when we get punched in the mouth and, and if we have an economic collapse, that all of those opportunities get funded into the new things that have already been opened up. Again, I mentioned the number one job among children under 12, they want to be YouTubers. <laughs> so you're going to have, I'm not suggesting that all the coders are now going to become YouTube stars. That would be a boring channel. <laughs> but, but the reality is we're on the cusp of a new waves of opportunities just starting to hit mass. And so when we have a reset or if we have a transition, it's simply going to be one era to the next era. It's what happens after every meltdown is you open up new industries that didn't exist before, yep. contrary to what Andrew Yang would like you to believe that will happen in the next one. Yeah. Hey, do I have a theory that the greater the hardship, right? The more you expand the possibility on the other side of the spectrum, right? Yep. And I think that's in personal life. I think that's in business too. And yeah, the scars hurt, especially in the short term or the wounds hurt in the short term. Right. But the process in which you heal, like builds a stronger muscle to actually do more and be more. And we have some pain. There's a lot of pain, but the lessons that are going to be learned from society are going to be incredible. It may not feel like that when, you know, you're the one that's not getting your pension check, right? Your social security check or the cost of things have gone up or however the economy responds to it. Right. But at the same time, you look at just what good is going to come from it. Because as we mentioned in the beginning, like people are hardwired to solve problems, right? And to help others overcome challenges. Correct. That's the other thing too is like, that's the whole Adam Smith theory of, you know, and they didn't necessarily have the word capitalism back then, but it's like people like just observe the marketplace and they kind of like intuitively figure out, oh, I'm going to go do this because that'll benefit that, but it'll also benefit me. It's weird how we operate, but it's going to be at, as you put it, at scale now. No one grows when times are good. <laughs> you grow from pain. It's why the bailouts were so damaging, not just because of the misallocation of resources, not just because of taxpayer cost. It was dangerous because we deprived ourselves of the beauty of pain. Pain makes us grow. It makes us better. It makes us solve bigger problems. And as a result, we've gotten so damn soft. Mm -hmm. We are so afraid of getting punched that we don't even enter the ring. So we don't even have a chance of victory anymore. <laughs> so the next time we get punched in the mouth, you're going to have a lot of really scared people running around who will have to learn how life works, yep. which is exactly what should happen. I get the benefit of working with a lot of entrepreneurs and I did a little bit of a podcast interview tour the last couple of weeks where I interviewed in person Gary Vaynerchuk, Brian Lee, who has $3 billion companies at 47, three of them, amazing. And Bedros Koulian, um, uh, the founder of Fit Body Bootcamp. Yeah, yeah. All three of them 
are the children of immigrants, all three of them. And so I saw this as a trend come up. And so hmm. I asked him about it. And the kind of the universal feedback among those three was came here with nothing, had to learn how to create and solve problems and work hard. People who were born here, people who have had it good since they were born, they don't have that hustle. They don't have that ability. When I go to Ukraine and speak to entrepreneurs who are first generation capitalists, they're hungry, man. Like any, any sniff of freedom, they cherish, they hung on to, they cling to, they fight for. Any advancement that they have from where they grew up, where their parents were oppressed by the government, where they had to escape tyranny, and they're ready for opportunities. And here we are wanting to go back to government control. We accomplish what everybody else wants. And so we're getting soft. And so we could use a good punch in the mouth and it will be a welcome refreshment when it happens. Yeah. And it's long overdue, but everything you're saying is, I would echo that. Right. And I see it in my kids, you know, my wife is, she grew up in the hood of Mexico and mm. It's been interesting. Her brothers have moved here, right? And sometimes, you know, when there's a safety net, it's amazing what people will do to not learn the lesson. Well, they'll mm. try to. So that's the other part of human nature is even though we're compelled, right, to create value, we're compelled to solve problems. We're also compelled to be lazy sometimes. We're compelled to find shortcuts. Serve energy, yes. Yeah. And that's one of those, you know, other attributes of humankind that, you know, you mean to be leery of because yeah, kids these days are soft at the same time. They're meant to, I would say, understand how efficiency plays into solutions. And so when those times get difficult, I have a good feeling that they'll have the wherewithal to learn technology, understand technology and how that applies to whatever the challenge is at hand. So they will have to. That is the beauty. So one final piece on this, I've made the argument that the way that we, I think, can convert people who disagree with us, you asked about converting people to our side of the argument, is if you remind them that capitalism is the only system in which bad ideas fail. When things collapse, a lot of bad ideas will go with it. A lot of companies that raise money, as you said, and can only make payrolls by raising another round, they will fail because they didn't have value in the marketplace. You can't say capitalism is the only system in which good ideas succeed because theoretically you could have a government create a great solution. The chances of that happening are very, very low, but it's possible. But capitalism is the only system where bad ideas go away. And we will see that in the next crash, unless, of course, the government gets involved again, which is, of course, antithetical to capitalism. Well, dude, thank you for what you're doing. I mean, I think this has become kind of a calling for you. At least that's what it sounds like. And, you know, I know it's a big responsibility, but thanks for all you're doing to advocate these ideas. And what, how can people learn more about you, follow you? I know you're really active on social media. What are the best ways? Yeah, well, my handle is Ryan Daniel Moran on Instagram. My podcast is capitalism.com. But really, I just know that there's a generation of young people out there who need an outlet for entrepreneurship. And it's the only way that we're going to convert them to our side of the aisle. You know, if uh, Robert Kiyosaki had a rich son, it might be me taking the torch to this generation that is so polarized on capitalism versus socialism. So at Ryan Daniel Moran or just capitalism on Instagram. 
and capitalism.com is where we put all our best stuff. Ryan, Daniel Moran, it's been a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time and we'll make sure we push all the information out to our list so we can uh, get you some traction there because I know you're putting up some amazing content. And you know what I also love about you is that you're bold and you speak your mind and you're a seeker of truth. And so inspiring. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh.